Welcome. Good to see you this morning. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can go ahead and uh, open them with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to do something uh, a bit dangerous as we start, knowing that your minds are not working yet. ask you to do a bit of introspection and thoughts. If you have a pen or a journal, this might be something worth doodling there on the back of a scratch sheet around you. It is that time of the year again. Sad for many children, but exuberant for many parents. School is upon us, and with that comes the beginning of for what for most of us is the new year, filled with fresh starts and anticipation and new challenges. The question I have for us as we begin this morning is, what would make this year successful for you? And I really do want to provide a little bit of space for you to ponder that question as we start and as all of life kicks back into some type of normal routine for many of us, met with challenges and exciting opportunities, what would cause you come May to look back and say, that was a good year? Perhaps take a moment to doodle your answer there in your notebook or on the back of a scratch sheet of paper. It seems that as we ponder the answer to that question, our minds intuitively affirm that there is more to a good year than things like uh, the avoidance of pain, or I would be stunned if you wrote, a good year will be successfully getting to two more weeks of vacation, a bit more money in a bank account, not lose my mind with these crazy kids, right? None, none of you doodled those answers, I would assume. We, we know that there is something more that drives us into a year, that every year, whether we claim it or not, is a gift of God meant to be stewarded for his glory. And yet it is convicting for my own heart to think about how often I am lazy in thinking about what God desires from me in this year. We know that for all of us in the room, there are two things that are true. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't love and follow Jesus, this year presents you with an amazing opportunity to turn to him and be saved. I would exhort you that there is no greater good this year that can come than for you to humbly repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And if you're here and you are a believer, you have a sure purpose. That is that God is at work this year to once again do the hard work of conforming you to the image of his son. That is what he is after for us all. That is the great good. 
The question we must ask is, how do we know if these things are happening? How do we know as a 42-year-old or a 57-year-old, when all the years seem to kind of run together, right? How do we know if this year I am more conformed to the image of Christ? I would ask you to even look back and consider this last year. Can you see clear gains in your love for Jesus, in your love for his word, in your love for the people that you're sitting around? If not, here's the harsh reality, that you, like me, could be guilty of squandering the gift of grace that a new year affords. This morning, like every morning, I pray that as we turn our attention to the scriptures, that God would use them to increase our love for him, that this would not just be another trite exercise of religious performance, but that he would use them to accomplish the good that he is after of conforming us to the image of Christ. And because we need his grace to do that, let's begin our time together in prayer this morning. Father, it is stunning to think about how quickly we can go into maintenance mode with our lives. Drift from day to day, week to week, month to month, and unfortunately from year to year. Squandering the vast riches of grace that is afforded to us on a daily basis. Father, we know that you are after more in our lives and in our world than simply successfully completing another year of school or another year of work, taking a couple of nice vacations with the family, saving up a little bit of money for a new toy, trying to minimize the pain in our lives and those we love. We, We know you're after way more than that. But we'll be honest that it's so e- our eyes get easily stuck on this life. And we need your spirit and your word to do the hard work of getting our eyes up, getting them off of our circumstances, off of the trivial things of this world, and causing them to focus on you. And you've been kind enough to give us that opportunity every week to gather here to do just that. I pray that your word and your spirit would have good effect in the lives of my friends this morning as we reflect on a quite familiar story, that you would use it to draw those that are far from you to faith and repentance, and for all of us in the room that you would do the unique work chiseling away sin in our lives and causing us to love you more. We ask that for the sake and the fame of Christ. Amen. Amen. Mark 10, we have a massive amount of Scripture to cover this morning. And you guys know that I'm not quite punctual with my words, so this could be a challenge. Uh, Mark 10, ride um, 
As a gift of grace, I gave Rodney the text on divorce and remarriage last week while I was away. And uh, so I I get to pick up uh, on the back end of that as we journey through uh, Mark's gospel, beginning in verse 13. And they were bringing the children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them into his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now I I chose to divide the text and connect this passage with the story that's going to be quite familiar that follows, because I think this serves for us as an overarching thesis for what Mark is doing in this text. This actually, this idea of childlike faith has been a thread that's connected the last several passages that we've looked at. The contrast between this radical humility and faith exemplified in children and the people with whom Jesus is interacting has been the spotlight for Mark. And this is probably more stunning in Mark's context than it is in ours. The discrepancy between children and the mature followers of Jesus would have been stark. Children, uh, far from being idolized like most in modern culture, were lowly, insignificant. High infant mortality rate would have caused them to be off the radar. And then the disciples, this traveling band of homeless riffraff, humorously fighting for who would be first in Jesus' traveling team, are contrasts put up against one another. And they, here in the text, are given this example of a child who were being brought to the holy man, right? So that he would pronounce blessing on them. This would have been quite common in Jesus' day. And the disciples do what you would expect them to do. They rebuke the people. We're not told who, but whoever's bringing them to Jesus, they're rebuked. Probably thinking, surely Jesus is too busy to take the time to care for these children. And Jesus does more than simply bless them. Notice what he does. He takes them into his arms, blesses them, lays his hand on them, and then holds these children up as a living illustration for the kingdom purposes that he is wanting to make in the text. And then in verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, now remember the backdrop of, the, of this passage and the other passages that we're considering is Jesus on his way to the cross. We know what is coming. In fact, most of the fall will be spent in the passion narrative, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So as he is setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So the image of a child is juxtaposed with Jesus' encounter with this young man. In this text, all we're told is that this young man was rich. Matthew 19, the story from Matthew's gospel, tells us that he was young in age. And Luke 18, 
another cross-reference text of the same story, tells us that this man was a ruler. So that's why your Bibles will often say here the story of Jesus with the rich, young ruler. And this rich, young ruler, who likely knew about inheritance, probably inheriting a great majority of his wealth, in an age where you don't create wealth so much as inherit it, he asked Jesus a very natural question for a rich young ruler. What must I do to likewise inherit eternal life? And he does it showing great respect for Jesus. Falling at his feet, calling him good teacher, and asking what he must do. Now before we write off this question as someone that's just trying to earn his way to heaven, that doesn't seem to be the point at all. This seems to be a quite good question. Not simply about inheriting eternal life after death, but what must I do to be a part of the eternal life, the full life that God has promised to his people? This return to the state in the garden, the shalom in the garden, what must I do to be a part of that kind of eternal life? And Jesus, verse 18, said, Why do you call me good? For no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the text starts with him saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in his normal cryptic fashion, right? You wish he'd just come out and answer the questions, but he gives this passage these explanations that seem a bit cryptic at first he begins by bouncing the attention off of him and deflecting it to god the father saying don't call me good no one's good but god alone this isn't de-emphasizing the deity of jesus but placing the spotlight on god the father and he points to the list of commandments the commandments are taken a bit out of order but he lists those that were typically on the second tablet, the commandments, those that are more horizontal in nature, dealing with how we respond to other people, and points out these commands. And we're not given the indication whether or not Jesus believes that the man is being truthful and saying that he has kept all these from childhood or not. But we see in Jesus' response in verse 21 that he looked at him, and loved him. Whether the man had actually kept all these commandments or not is not seemingly the point of the text. Jesus knows that there are some commands, commands that he has not mentioned, that this man has surely not kept. And while he may or may not have been obedient to these commands, to not commit adultery, to not steal, to not bear false witness, to not defraud, to honor his father and mother, The focal point, in fact, the central command from which all these others derive, Jesus knew this man had rebelled from. In Exodus 20, verse 3, the beginning of the commands says this, You shall have no other gods 
before me. And Jesus, knowing that even if the man had kept these other commandments, this one was not being kept, challenges him to do something that will prove whether or not he has kept this command or not. He says, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Now, this should not be read by us as a command for all of God's people at all times that we would go out and sell everything that we've had and give them to the poor. Surely God's people should have a heart for the poor, a love for the poor, a radical generosity for the poor. But we see in this Jesus highlighting an area that he knows has trapped this rich young ruler. And so Jesus got to the heart of this man. And we know that Jesus busted him by the rich young ruler's response. Text tells us that his face fell. He went away sorrowful. This is one of the examples in Mark of someone being called but refusing. And we're told why. Because he had great possessions. So he goes away sorrowful, unwilling to do what Jesus has commanded because he has great possessions. Two loyalties or contrasts. Jesus does this throughout his stories, his parables specifically in Matthew 13, if you're taking notes. These two little scenes that Jesus uses to highlight the nature of his kingdom in Matthew 13, 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, the point is, the only thing that would cause you to give away one thing is greater treasure in another thing. Finding greater treasure in the kingdom of heaven and in relationship to Jesus, these stories demonstrate that you would give away all that you had to purchase that field or to claim that prize. The rich young ruler in our story is unwilling to do that. Why? Because he has great possessions. And then Jesus dials it up a notch to demonstrate for us that this is not just a story about a rich young ruler, but this is a story that has implications for us all. In verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at these words. Very similar scene is when Jesus teaches on divorce and remarriage, that Jesus turns the temperature up so much on marriage that the disciples are stunned. They say, well, it's better for, nobody, it's better for us not to get married then. Okay. Same deal. He turns up the temperature on riches and wealth. And here, interestingly, he presents wealth, riches, as an obstacle to entrance into the kingdom. Now, in a Jewish mind and in most ideas about God, the exact opposite is true. Riches are actually a symbol of divine blessing, a reward for piety. And this is Satan's assumption with Job, right, in the opening chapter of the book of Job. He comes and says, well, God, clearly, you've just looked out for your boy. 
He's been good. He's been obedient. He's the most righteous dude. So you've built a hedge of protection around him. All you got to do is take that hedge away from him and Job's going to curse you. The assumption is be good and God rewards good with riches and blessing. But here, Jesus does the exact opposite. He presents riches as a temptation, a hindrance, and a diversion to entrance into the kingdom. One of the commentators on this text says this, that riches provide false security that makes radical trust in God difficult. That riches are in fact an obstacle to receiving the gift of God's grace in the kingdom. I mean, every year around Christmas time, we have this discussion with my grandparents. Made some money, have a nice house, getting old, and the question is, what do you give somebody that's got everything? Right? So we have this email thread going around of, what are we going to get, pops and granny, because we've already given them every present known to man. Right? So you try to come up with, I think last year we gave them a handmade squirrel feeder. Okay? That's what you give people that have everything, right? And I'm not even sure they liked it. Because they've got everything. You can't give someone a gift who has everything. And the same is true for the kingdom of God. It is hard to receive the gift of God's grace when your hands are full. It is hard to receive the gift of God's grace when your hands are full. And Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, get the contrast here. Large animal going through the eye of a needle. And Jesus says, this is the stunning act of grace that will be required for those that are rich, those that are wealthy, to enter God's kingdom. And here we get a sense of the point and why the connection is made between children and the rich young ruler in this text. Children exemplify not simply certain attitudes that we should model, but rather they demonstrate their willingness to enter the kingdom. This seems to be the point. They don't hesitate or hedge. There is nothing tethering them to the world, and so they run to Jesus. But not this one. Jesus earlier has said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. So entering the kingdom isn't about striving, but it's about receiving. And the emphasis seems to be the fact that kids do a really good job of receiving. And we know this to be true, don't we? Those that are caught up in the cares of the world, caught up in what others may think, caught up with full hands, they just don't do a very good job of receiving. The rich young ruler wanted to enter, but he could not receive. Children aren't really striving to enter, but they do a really good job of receiving. And this is why we all need to hear this text. 
Because none of you listening, including myself, this morning, hear this text and think, I'm the rich young ruler. You all have excuses, and so do I, as to why this text is not applicable to us. But I want you to consider for a moment the stunning nature of the riches found in this room. I mean, consider for a moment the terrible state that we find ourselves in because of our radical richness. Think. Financially. I mean, the stunning wealth of even the poorest of the poor in this room this morning. Comparatively, compared to the world, we are stunningly blessed. Financial riches. Think of the knowledge riches that are in this room. I mean, think of the fact that most of you can reach in your back pocket and pull out a smartphone and be connected to information that most of known human history had zero access to. You have access to a wealth of information that never would have been imagined. Think of the religious riches that are found in this room. Think of the riches that this book represents. Think of the fact that the majority of human history and the majority of people that live today can't read a Bible in their own language. The majority of those that gather today are having to depend on these oral stories that have circulated throughout history. And you probably have a gift of seven or eight of these laying around your house. This is one of these sermons that's really easy to preach right now, right? Think of the stunning religious riches that is seen in us even being able to gather here this morning, right? I mean, consider if we were Iraqi Christians today. This still didn't happen. We are religiously rich. Think of the relational riches that are in this room. 